Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Talking Tudors, episode 123, and the eighth installment of the All Things Tudor Queens and Consorts series. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron, and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. This really does make a difference. While the podcast and all the content being shared over July and August is free, please consider supporting the event by becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. August's prize is an absolutely stunning portrait miniature of Catherine of Aragon, painted by Roland Hoy, and a Tudor Queen's motto bracelet. A huge thank you to Roland and Shearer for sponsoring this amazing prize. Patrons will also be given access to patron-only episodes and patron-only Zoom live webinars. Now, on to today's episode. I'm thrilled that joining me on the show to talk about Catherine Parr's household is Dr. Dakota Hamilton. Dr. Hamilton gained her bachelor's degree with a double major in English and History from the University of Louisville. During her MA, she worked with Dr. A.J. Slaven as both his research and administrative assistant. He also directed Dr. Hamilton's MA thesis, A Tudor Woman of Influence, a study of the relationship between Henry VIII's Chief Minister Thomas Cromwell and Lady Lyle during the years 1533 to 1540. She gained her DPhil in 1992 from Oxford University. Dr. Jennifer Loach directed her thesis, The Household of Queen Catherine Parr. Our conversation's coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Thank you. 
Welcome to Talking Tutors, Dakota. How are you? I am good. How are you doing in Australia? I'm very well, thank you. I'm really excited to be chatting with you today. So I suppose a a good place to start is you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Yes, uh, I I thought about this a little bit and what I should say and what I should not say. I I think I'd like to just start by simply saying that I fell in love with English history when I was 15 years old. And it was a very strange situation. My family was going on vacation in Florida and my father gave me a book on Mary Queen of Scots and my mother gave me a book on Catherine Parr. It was a novel from the late 19th century. I had no intention of reading either of those. I mean, why would you in the sun and sand and all of that? And the second day of our vacation, I fell off a diving board. It was not my fault. There were kids playing around and one of them jumped on the board and I slipped and I cut my leg rather badly. And so suddenly I had almost three weeks ahead of me on crutches in sand. And so I wasn't going anywhere near the pool. I wasn't going anywhere near the ocean. And so I read those books and immediately fell in love with all of it. And so everywhere we went, my mother scoured all of the secondhand bookstores. And by the end of our vacation, I had a couple of dozen books on Henry VIII and Queen Elizabeth. And, and I was hooked. And I'd like to think that I would have been hooked regardless of cutting up my leg but but there we are so so that's how I I fell in love with English history and it's ironic that one of the very first books I read was indeed on Catherine Parr uh, little did I know that I would study her more intensely later on but uh, I'm from Louisville Kentucky I went to the University of Louisville where I got where I did a double major in English and history and I graduated in 1985 I then started my master's degree in humanities, and I, again, was able to combine my love of English literature and history. And I studied with a man by the name of A.J. Slavin, Arthur J. Slavin, who is a major figure in Tudor studies. And I was his research and administrative assistant, and the debt that I owe him is incalculable because he really schooled me and schooled me well in Tudor history. And when I graduated in 1989, I'm probably the only master's candidate who could read a 16th century hand. So when I then went on to Oxford, I was ready really to step right into the records offices and begin work. So I was at Somerville College and I studied with the very great Jennifer Loach, who directed my thesis on Catherine Parr. And I finished the requirements for that degree in 1992, but I waited a year to formally graduate because I wanted to experience all the bells and whistles of an Oxford graduation. And when I finished at Oxford, I went to Missouri for seven years. Um, I put together one of those dreadful summer study abroad program. Uh, although I will, I, I will say, I will say that our program had a very strong academic base to it. But so I did that. And then in 1999, my husband was hired by 
the English department at Humboldt State University in Northern California. And I brought the Oscar program with us and almost immediately was hired by the history department as an adjunct professor. I taught there for 20 years and I retired in, in August. And so, so now I spend my time in my garden and I write and read to my heart's content. That sounds absolutely wonderful. What a, what a really exceptional background. I really enjoyed hearing about all that. Thank you. And now we are talking today about Catherine Parr's household, a subject you've spent a long time researching. So let's just dive right in. Can you talk to us a little bit about the structure of Catherine's household? Yes. The, the first thing we have to understand is that there were two principal establishments at court. I think when a lot of people read about the court, they don't have uh, an understanding of what that represented, what it, what it actually looked like. So there was a household for the king. There was a household for the queen. The king's son, Prince Edward, had his own establishment. He wasn't often at court, but when he was, his his, his household was accommodated as, as well. But for the most part, we're talking about the king and queen's households being the focal point of the court. So the king and queen's households had two components each. We've heard of the upstairs and downstairs divide, courtesy of things like Downton Abbey. But that wasn't a 19th century invention. There was an upstairs establishment for the king and for the queen, and they also had a downstairs establishment as well. So upstairs, the, the king and queen would display their power, authority, and general magnificence through conspicuous consumption, clothing, jewelry, and also spectacular food. The downstairs establishment serviced the upstairs primarily by providing that sumptuous food. So there were, so there were two components to the household. Now, physically, the king and queen's upstairs households were typically as close together as possible. So if we take uh, a standard courtyard, for example, we can think of the king's household uh, being in one side and the queen's household in another side, probably at right angles, but, but, but still. So whenever possible, their households were situated as closely together as the royal palace uh, provided. They were separate, but nevertheless, again, situated as closely together as possible. And as far as the structure is concerned, the concert's household overall uh, was similar to that of the king's establishment, um, though on a smaller scale. And we're still talking about a very sizable entity. The upstairs establishment consisted of about 45 women. The men, male members of her upstairs establishment, were roughly 50 to 60 members. So we're talking about a lot of people sort of hanging around all the time. So we start, if you were at court, you would start in the great or watching chamber. And there were guards around to help provide security and also to help decide who was entitled to go further, to go into the next room. And the next room that you would enter was the presence chamber. And in the presence chamber, the queen might have received diplomats or diplomatic missions, um, important people would have dined publicly, that sort of thing. And then beyond that room, there was a privy chamber. Now by chamber, I'm not necessarily talking about one room. 
Uh, a chamber could be a suite of rooms. But, but generally speaking, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about a great or watching chamber, a presence chamber, and a privy chamber. Each room was more exclusive than the next. And so you're standing at court, gave you entree to these different rooms. And if you were really someone important, then you might be shown all the way into the queen's privy chamber. Now, in addition to this structure, there were other rooms at the queen's disposal. She might've had a withdrawing room, uh, a robing room, a breakfast chamber. Uh, she would have had a closet or oratory where she could carry out private devotions. She might've had a study. She might've had a small library. And of course, there was some provision as well for her jakes or her close stool, if you will. And we know that Catherine Parr had several of these because we have the bills that were given to her to have them repaired. I'd like to, to mention Hampton Court in particular because uh, when the king died in 1547, an inventory was taken of the palace and the clerks who were recording what was in the rooms, who were actually taking the inventory, seemed to have started with one room before they moved on to the next, which was adjacent. And so by looking at this inventory, we get a real understanding of what the queen's apartments were like. So in addition to the rooms I've already mentioned, at least at Hampton Court, we can, we can see that she had another withdrawing room. She had a robing chamber. There was the king's bedchamber, which I take to mean that when the king wanted to engage in, in, in marital relations, he would come to her side of the household and she would join him. Uh, she had her own bedchamber. There was another privy chamber and there were various galleries, passageways, lobbies and such uh, that were also used in the Queen's household. Uh, we know that one lobby, for example, was furnished with musical instruments. There were tables and chairs. And you can easily imagine the Queen and her women sitting around at these tables, perhaps playing cards or board games while music played in the background. And I will say that anybody who's interested, really interested in the physical layout should consult um, Simon Thurley's work on the royal palaces. The, his, his books are lavishly illustrated, so you can, you can get a pictorial, you can get a visual understanding of what these rooms were like. So that's the upstairs establishment. There was a downstairs establishment, and the Queen's service departments mirrored, to some extent, the King's own service departments. So if we look, for example, at Anne of Cleves, we know that she had a granary, bakehouse, pantry, a brew house, a buttery, and the buttery was responsible for, for issuing the beer. There was a, a cellar, spice room, chaundry, which was for candles and tapers and the like. Uh, there was a kitchen, a slaughterhouse, a scullery, a hall, a woodyard. And of course, there was an almoner as well hanging around because he was responsible for distributing leftover food from the royal tables to dispense as alms to the poor at the gate. So the king's side had all of these departments as well. But in addition to them, he had a pitcher house, a wafery where biscuits were produced. Uh, there was a large confectionery service department. There was a laundry, a larder, a 
boiling house, place for fish and meat, a place for poultry, scalding house, a pastry. So his side of the, the downstairs establishment was a lot more extensive than the queen's and the queen's servants would draw on the departments that the queen's side did not have. So that's very generally speaking, what the queen's side of the household, how it was structured, how it was organized, what it what it looked like. Yes, I do love hearing about all those details. And I agree with you that Simon Thurley's work is is exceptional. And I think I have all his books and I even sometimes oh, yes. take pictures with me when I go to the palaces so I can say, oh, okay, that's where that was. That's how that works. Yeah, it's wonderful. Now, you, you spoke about roughly sort of 45 women serving the Queen upstairs. Was there much continuity between the women who served Catherine Parr and those who'd served her predecessors? A surprising degree of continuity. And we don't have to look very far to see this. Catherine's sister, Anne Parr Herbert, I'll just call her Anne Herbert from now on, uh, she served in the households of all of Henry's six wives. Anne Stanhope, who married Edward Seymour, Seymour, who we know was was Queen Jane's brother. Uh, Later, he became Lord Protector. It's likely that Anne also served in all of the previous consort's establishment. And in terms of Anne Stanhope, it's understandable why there was this degree of continuity. And that's because the personnel in the Queen's household tended to be the wives, the daughters, the near relations of men who served in the King's household and also his government. And as long as the men retained their positions, their wives generally retained their positions in the consort's household as well. It was also the case that if you had previous royal service, it was sort of a a pass to to future service as well. Anne Bassett, who was in Jane Seymour's household, for example, uh, she entered her household very late in Jane's pregnancy, but it was enough to secure her a place in the household of Anne of Cleves. And in fact, the king told her personally that the position would be waiting for her if and when he remarried. And of course he did, and she had a position in in Anne's household, then in Catherine Howard's household, and of course in Catherine Parr's as well. I should also add that family connections among those at court was fairly extensive. It seems like everybody was related to someone else and trying to wade through the family trees and figure out the connections is a real challenge because, of course, in this in this particular time period, in-laws were considered as much family as your blood relations were. And so there's this, this web of interconnectivity between all of these people. Yeah, I do love hearing about those connections. It's one of my favorite things when I discover one that I wasn't aware of. Oh, this person's related to that person. It's so they're, interesting. They're, all, they're <laughs> all related to each other. It is funny. Now, can you tell us about some of those women, the high-ranking women who, who served Catherine or who were in her circle? And what sort of tasks would these women, considering their status, have done for the Queen? Well, I mentioned Anne Stanhope, and she's a good, good person to start with, actually, because she was one of the most prominent of Catherine's women. She married Edward Seymour in about 1535, I think it was, and Seymour was on his way up in the king's household and government. There's no question about it. So, so she continued her service to, to Anne Cleves briefly, then Catherine Howard, and then of course, Catherine Parr. I will say that, that later on, 
she becomes, I, I don't want to use all of those words we associate that, that are gender heavy, shall we say, but she was not a particularly likable individual. She seems to have curved her tongue, so to speak, while Henry VIII was alive and her husband was still making his way in the king's household and government. And she did likewise. But once Henry had died and once Catherine had married Thomas Seymour, then things started to deteriorate between them and the infighting between Catherine Parr and Anne, you know, Anne Seymour was pretty fierce. So she, she was a very fierce individual, although, as I said, I think she kept a slightly lower profile when she was actually serving in Catherine's household. You have Catherine Brandon, who was the Duchess of Suffolk. She was married to Henry VIII's long-standing friend, Charles Brandon. I mean, they had known each other basically since Henry's childhood. And so she was very well-placed within Catherine's household. Lady Joan Denny, not a particularly high-ranking woman, but a woman of great importance and influence given the fact that her husband was very close to the king. And in fact, the closest that an individual could get to the king. He was groom of the king's stool. So when the king went to relieve himself, Denny was there to keep him company, to hand him towels and, and, and do whatever. So I would count her also as one of the higher ranking women in the household. It's no coincidence that these three women I mentioned also were committed evangelicals. And of course, that's going to play a very important role in the last years of the reign. Uh, the queen also had, of course, a number of very close family relations with her as well, as, as you would expect. Her sister, of course, was in her household. Probably we could say that she was closest to the queen and the equivalent of the groom of the stool. Certainly she was the one she, uh, Catherine would turn to in time of need. There was Catherine's cousin, Lady Maud Lane, her stepdaughter, Margaret Neville, um, a more distant relation, Lady Elizabeth Tyrrett. And in the case of Anne and Elizabeth Tyrrett, of course, again, we're talking about people who had strong evangelical beliefs. So, so the sorts of things these, these women did, well, first and foremost, they kept the queen company in her apartments. They would attend her on formal occasions. That's, that's a given. More specifically, they might have, for example, carried the cushion that she would use to kneel on during church services. They would have carried the offering that she would make at these same chapel services. They would have assisted her at the Monday services the, the Thursday before Easter. They would have held the basin or handed her towels, um, made further offerings, that sort of thing. When Catherine dined publicly, again, she would be surrounded by these women. And of course, they would have participated in very formal court functions. When the Duke of Nahira visited in 1544, and, and he was on an embassy from Spain to further the Anglo-Imperial alliance, Catherine entertained him and his suite in her private apartments. And there was music and there was dancing and there was merriment. So in a way, and again, this is a very gendered description, but it was one that has been used to, before to describe these women. They, they were the ornaments to the court. They added to the magnificence that Henry VIII 
was always trying to create. So their presence simply added materially to the, the magnificence he wanted to portray to all and sundry. Presumably, uh, you know, close proximity to the monarch brings with it certain rewards and gifts, but did they actually receive a wage for their work? The, the higher ranking women didn't, which isn't to say that they weren't paid, and I'll put that in quotation marks, because there were very important perquisites to their offices. You've alluded to one just now, but the fact that they were rendering personal service to the queen meant that they could ask her to ask the king for favors for their nearest and dearest, for their husbands, for other family members, their clients, and, and that sort of and that sort of thing. So they didn't have wages, but they were in positions to promote their family, friends, and clients. They received meals at court at the crown's expense. They got housing. They got allowances for lighting. So we're talking about candles, perhaps tapers. They were also essentially spies as well, reporting what happened in the Queen's household back to their husbands. So when you were talking about the Queen's household and the King's household, you mentioned, of course, the King's, although similar, was probably much greater in size, or not probably, was much greater in size and and had more staff members, etc. Are there any other main differences between the two households that you'd like to to mention? I think the principal differences were, as you've mentioned, in, in size and personnel. The king's household was was enormous, absolutely enormous. He fed and housed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people every single day. So we're talking about a huge, huge establishment. Another difference, of course, is the issue of influence. Some of the women were willing to approach the king directly. We have Anne Bassett's experience again. Her mother wanted her to, to ask the king a favor. And she was perfectly willing to approach the king on what she said were small matters, but on greater matters, she was decidedly hesitant. Uh, And I take that to mean that there were some things that the king was willing to hear from a woman petitioner and some that he wasn't. And these women seemed to have known where the line was drawn, and they were very careful not to step over it, not to, to violate it. But there's no question that these women certainly did ask the Queen to intervene on their behalf. While most of the Queen's immediate servants were women, a number of important officers were, of course, filled by men as well. Can you tell us about some of the male officers and their positions in Catherine's household? The head of her household was the Chamberlain and the Vice-Chamberlain. In Catherine's case, her uncle, Sir William Parr of Horton, served as her chancellor, or sorry, as her chamberlain. But after 1544, he was gone from court a lot of the time. And so the responsibilities fell on to the vice chamberlain, who was perfectly competent to take those duties on. She had a chancellor. We're talking really about a a financial officer who headed the queen's learned council. And this council administered the properties, the queen's estate, if you will, which paid for her side of the household. She had a master of the horse. I think his duties are fairly explanatory. He was responsible for the stable. She also had a secretary, mentioned the almoner, but there were also four chaplains in her household. She had a clerk of the closet. Again, we're talking about an oratory for private prayers and meditations, that sort of thing. She had a physician, 
and she had an apothecary. And the downstairs establishment was administered by two masters. Now, as with the women in the queen's household, a lot of the men holding these positions had seen royal service well before Catherine became queen. Some had been in the households of previous consorts. Some had been in the king's household in the king's service generally. Sir Edward Bainton, for example, served as the vice chamberlain for the households of Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, Anne of Cleves, Catherine Howard, and he started out as Catherine Parr's chancellor as well, but he died about a year into service, and of course his position was assumed by Catherine's uncle. And as far as Serene Parr is concerned, uh, again, we have a man who had lo a long record of service to the crown. He had known the king from a fairly young age, or the king was young when he knew him. Parr went with the king to France in 1513. He went with the king to the Field of the Cloth of Gold in 1520, when a household was set up for the king's illegitimate son, Henry Duke of Richmond. He was made chamberlain for the boy's household. So, so he had a long record of service to, to the king before he became chancellor when Bainton Died. And when you were, were talking about the structure of, of the household in general, you spoke yes. about that series of, of rooms that the, yes. the queen would have inhabited, you know, from the, the more public to the more private rooms. Did you want to say anything else about their main features or describe them a little bit more? Well, a lot of the furniture that would have been in these rooms, very little of it was permanent. There, there were some permanent pieces, but a lot of the furniture was designed to be taken from place to place to place. So when the court moved from one palace to another and they would they would regularly move because the palaces had to be had to be thoroughly cleaned after probably a very short occupation, but they they stood they stood it out and stayed there longer than that. But a lot of the furniture would simply have been folded up and taken taken away with them. Uh, one thing that I did want to mention in terms of what these women did with their time, they would play cards, they would play board games, they would dance among themselves. Catherine had her own minstrels who would play for her. She had her own fool. I, I don't like to use the word jester because I don't think it really applies in this case, but, but she did have her own fool. So the women spent a lot of time together they, they played games, they listened to sermons, they read religious books, some of which were clearly forbidden given the plots of 1546. So they spent a lot of time and they knew each other, they knew each other fairly well. Presumably they did some sort of charitable services as well, I imagine. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so can you talk to us about the Queen's Council during Catherine's reign? I, I don't think we hear very much about the Queen's Council. Was this a separate establishment to her household? And what were their main responsibilities? Yes, so the Queen's Council consisted of a handful of men with expertise in different areas. So we have the Chancellor, and in Catherine's case, it was Sir Thomas Arundel, who also served in that capacity, well, served in, I think it was Anna Cleve's household. I need to check that if my memory serves. So, so Thomas Arundel serves as the chancellor and he's responsible for overseeing the work of a receiver general who would take in the money from, generated by the queen's properties 
she had an attorney, she had a solicitor, and they would represent the Queen's interests in the various laws of court in London. Uh, there was an auditor to, again, check the books, make sure they're up to date, more accurate. There was a surveyor. The surveyor was responsible for taking stock, regularly taking stock of the Queen's properties determining what sort of condition they were in, what the natural resources were, what the property boundaries were, that, that sort of thing. And, and then, there, of course, there was a clerk of the council who would keep records. There was an underkeeper of the chambers who would keep the chamber clean, provide paper, that sort of thing. But you're absolutely right. I mean, this, the council itself was separate from the Queen's household. It had permanent chambers in the old palace of Westminster, which isn't to say that the queen didn't know these men or didn't have contact with them. They simply were not a regular day-to-day -day part of her household. When she went to Whitehall, she might have had more contact with them, but when she went to Hampton Court, perhaps less so, or if she went further afield, which isn't to say that she didn't keep abreast of how her properties were being managed. It was clear on a number of occasions that some of the decisions that were taken by her council came directly from, from Catherine Parr. So I think that's the principal reason why you don't hear too much about the learned council because it was separate from her household and it dealt with simply the administration of her estates. And I find all of that really fascinating, but I can understand why some others might not be that keen on, on it. But, but I do like to know how things work. So they're managing the properties and the revenues coming from these properties are spent on her side of the household, maintaining it. So first and foremost, we're talking about paying out wages, fees, annuities, stipends, whatever. But we are talking about maintaining her household. And of course, it was incredibly expensive. Uh, we're talking the average amount for a Tudor consort's uh, dower properties being in the range of 4,000 pounds. And 4,000 pounds, it, it's a fair chunk of change today, but it was even more so when you think that some of the offices on her, well, the underkeeper or the keeper of her council chambers only made about six pounds the whole year. So we're talking about a vast amount of money and you can imagine the kind of expenses that were run up by her household. We're not just talking about wages. We're talking about buying expensive clothing and jewelry and making presents and gifts of these kinds of things. Yeah, so incredibly important, really, to her practice uh, of queenship, but unable uh, to do it without it. Yeah, abs absolutely. The, these properties were absolutely essential to, to maintaining her royal household maintaining her magnificence, maintaining her status really as a consort. I've talked about wages and fees and stipends and all of that. And, and, but we're also talking about, uh, apart from clothing and jewelry, we're talking about mundane things. We're talking about fixing clocks. We're talking about fixing her crossbow. We're talking about the purchase of books. We're talking about just everyday things, rewarding messengers who come from someone she knows. Everyone gets rewarded for, for their service, and everyone gets a tip, and that adds up. And I will say that if you look at the, the revenue of Elizabeth of York, for example, there were a number of times when her revenue fell short of her expenses. 
and she had to borrow money from the king. Now, the king, of course, could also be counted on to make gifts of money, gifts of cash, really, to his wives. But it was expected that they were going to live on that revenue and would not become a drain on the king's estates. Yeah, that's so interesting. I was thinking when you were saying about Catherine's involvement, her counsel, that I remember there is evidence to suggest that one of the first things Anne Boleyn did when she became queen was oh, address yeah. her counsel. And and I think it's Simon Thurley that talks about the fact that Anne extracted the most from her, her properties in terms of she, yeah, um, she neg- renegotiating five, leases and things like that. £5,000. And it wasn't because she was chucking out people who might have supported Catherine of Aragon. It was because she wanted to raise rents. She wanted to maximize what she could get from the property. So she was the most successful of all of the queen's wives, or the king's wives, of making the most of her property. Five thousand pounds, and she carried a surplus over in one year. So she was careful about how that money was spent as well. That's why I love, even though it's, it's quite administrative, I do love yes. learning about it because it does uh, reflect on the queen, doesn't it? And it shows it what they and, were like. And, the, and there's one other thing I will say. In addition to the revenues produced by these properties, uh, it meant that Catherine could act essentially like one of the great lords in the country. She had influence in parliamentary elections. And it's, I don't think it's any coincidence that in the elections of 45 and, and the parliaments following that, a number of people connected to her, some of them quite close to her, got seats to parliament from areas where her dower properties were located. And there is evidence to suggest that she was responsible for promoting them to parliament. And then, of course, there are the smaller ways that these properties could be used. Uh, The queen was constantly sending gifts of venison and wild boar to various people. When the king was in France in 1540-45, she sent him a buck for for his personal table. So she took advantage of every aspect of land ownership just like any lord, uh, the highest lord in the land would do. And even though I suppose they didn't get to visit all their properties, it was still an extension of their power and presence, wasn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. So fascinating. Okay. So in July 1544, the king... Sorry. No, no, no. All good. The king appointed Catherine Parr regent while he went off to war in France. So do you think she was sort of merely a figurehead for the king's council or did she wield some real power? She wielded real power. I think Henry looked upon her in much the same way as he looked upon Catherine of Aragon. She was incredibly well-educated. She was an active individual. She had a very sharp mind. And I think that she, appointing her regent, solved a lot of problems for him. When you had conservatives at court who were who wanted to see no more change, see little in the way of change in religious practices in the country, and then you had the reformers on the one side. Who do you choose? You choose someone neutral. And at the time, he thought it was his wife, although she's considerably less neutral than he might have thought at the time. But she was an entirely capable individual, and he expected her to be as diligent as he himself was when it came to managing managing his affairs. One of the things that also made Catherine a really a good choice was that she had personal knowledge of the north of England. Her first two husbands were from were from New Yorkshire and she lived there. 
for about 10 years. And indeed, she was in Yorkshire uh, during the Pilgrimage of Grace in 1537. And she knew firsthand how volatile the region could be and the kind of chaos that could come of unrest. So it's no surprise that the north of England was of special concern to her. And she was constantly urging the Lord Lieutenant and the two wardens of the marches, the, the, the border areas around the Scottish border, constantly urging them to be fairly active and destructive when it came to making raids across the border. I'm sure she well remembered uh, the King of Scotland trying to invade during Catherine of Aragon's tenure as regent. And she wanted to make sure that that didn't happen on her watch. But even though the North was of particular importance, the queen was involved in helping to supply the king's army in France. And nothing was too little or too insignificant for her attention. So at one point, the king wants many hundreds of spades and shovels and she sees to it personally. She gives orders that, that his commandment be fulfilled. Another major concern was getting enough money together, not only to send to France to pay the soldiers, but also to send to the North to pay the soldiers along the border. And those were of special concern to her. If we look at the, the small council that she was left with to administer the king's affairs, the council is very careful to constantly reiterate that they were doing things because the queen had commanded to. The Earl of Shrewsbury, who was the Lord Lieutenant in the North, always wrote directly to the queen, always. And there was no question that Catherine Parr was very much a hands-on regent, exactly the sort of person that Henry wanted her to be, and he expected her to be. So certainly not the nursemaid that she's sometimes made out to be in certain popular yeah. culture and, and novels. And I, I find that completely untenable. Henry was very much a 16th century man. In addition to being a king, he was a 16th century man. I think he would have found it an insult to his masculinity that he would marry a woman because she, he needed a nurse. He had lots of he had lots of doctors to take care of that. He had other people to handle that. And I, I just have never been able to see him marrying Catherine because he thought she would make a good nurse. Yeah. Um, I, I think he wanted companionship, certainly, but I think he wanted someone who was smart, who he could talk to, who, who he could interact with. I, I don't think she was a nurse which isn't to say she might not, I mean, that she didn't change his bandages once in a while, but that was not the principal reason he married her, by no means. So in your thesis, you state that Catherine Parr and her women unwittingly became political figures through their religious activities. So could you unpack this for us a little bit and give us some examples of these activities? And as, as a preface to this, I do want to point out that from the Middle Ages, well, into the 15th and 17th century. It was thought that women should take a, a role in ensuring that their household had the appearance of morality, of rightness. They were responsible for educating their children in religion. They provided their first lessons. They were responsible for the souls under their roofs and that included their husbands as well. So it was perfectly acceptable that 
women would take a role in religion. But I will say that this could get women into trouble, women at the court into trouble. But in the case of Catherine Parr, their religious activities had a political dimension to them. The king was fairly conservative when it came to matters of religion. When Catherine married the king in July 1543, the king's book had just been published. Uh, It replaced the bishop's book from the 1530s. And it was a very conservative laying out of religious theology. By the end of his reign, he may have been changing his mind. It's, It's difficult to say. But the last year, the last full year of his reign was a very dynamic one. We know that in the case of Catherine Parr, that sermons were being preached in her chambers. And again, this is not unusual. The various ordinances that were drawn up for the regulation of the king and queen's households indicated that there were supposed to be regular religious services and people were supposed to attend them. What drew attention to the services in her chambers was that they had a seemingly reformist bent to them and that the women read literature, religious literature that was forbidden, or at least that was one of the the charges. And as divided as the king's government was on religion in the last year of his reign, where you had conservatives like Stephen Gardner, who wanted to hold religion in stasis, if you will, and men like Anthony Denny and the Earl of Hartford and the Archbishop of Canterbury, Thomas Cramner, wanted to see further reforms. So there is this this tension between conservatives and reformers. I don't want to call them factions because I think that implies too much. I think we're talking about a very fluid situation. So David Starkey suggests that Princess Elizabeth's New Year's gift to the king, which was a translation of Queen's Prayers and Meditations, that the king hadn't been particularly pleased by this. Then in February 1546, Catherine interceded on behalf of Cambridge University. People were concerned about the dissolution of the colleges at Oxford, and they thought the same thing might happen at Cambridge. And so they wrote to Catherine to intercede on behalf on their behalf with the king. And, and she did. And there is the suggestion that perhaps the king didn't like Catherine taking on this prominent role in a policy area that he was very possessive of. We know that there were tensions at the time and probably were responsible for rumors that were circulating in London and even across the channel that the king was displeased with his wife and that he was thinking of getting rid of her and perhaps moving on to a seventh wife. So things came to a head probably in March of 1546, mid-March, perhaps to early April. And this is, this is a new dating. Uh, traditionally, the, the plot against Catherine Parr has been dated to around the time that Anne Askew was examined in the tower when she was racked and then when she was executed. But there's very persuasive arguments to backdate this a bit to, to March and April. So this the plot against Catherine supposedly took shape when she had the temerity to debate with the king certain religious principles. 
And it was said that Stephen Gardner, who was just back from a mission to the continent, heard this exchange. And that when Catherine left, the king said something to the effect, uh, what a fine thing it was to get to his old age to be lectured to by his wife. And he agreed to allow a warrant for the queen's arrest. And part of that arrest would include a search of the queen's chambers uh, and a search of her sister's chambers and so forth for forbidden literature. Supposedly, one of the people associated with Catherine Parr got wind of this, supposedly found the warrant or saw it or heard it or some such thing and reported it to Catherine Parr. And you can understand that this sent Catherine into a kind of death spiral, if you will. And she quite literally took to her bed. And the king, inquiring what was wrong with his wife, didn't get much in the way of satisfaction. So when further inquiries were made, she, she told him that she was upset because she thought that she had displeased the king. And he said, no, um, of course not. And maybe we should, um, let's, let's, let's resume our debates about theology. And she makes a very timely submission and says, <laughs> you know, I, I wouldn't dare to question you about theology. When I ask you questions, it's further my own knowledge of theology and to learn by your responses. And this persuades him. Well, there, there's a lot of conjecture around, around this. But it is the case that one day he's in the garden with Catherine, Catherine supposedly even sitting on his lap, and they're good friends again, when Thomas Risley comes with the arrest warrant. And seeing him, the king takes him aside and abuses him verbally and sends him away. And when Catherine tries to intervene on his behalf, the king tells her something to the effect that, oh, he's not worth your concern. After that particular episode, he showers all of these presents, jewelry and, and the like on her, which probably is his way of saying, oh, sorry about that. I didn't mean it. Please forgive me and, and go forward. Then we come to Anne Askew. And Anne Askew was a Yorkshire woman who had left her husband. She had been examined in 1545 over her religious beliefs, which were uh, reformist in nature. She was released at the time, but she was rearrested in the summer of 1546. And when Thomas Risley and uh, went to the tower to question her, he had a specific set of questions he wanted to ask. He wanted to know who at court was supporting her, wanted to know what women were supporting her, what men in the Privy Council were supporting her, and she refused to give him any names. And it's at this point that Risley takes off his coat and operates the rack himself. And she gives up no names and ultimately is carried to her place of execution in a chair because of course she can't walk and she is burned for her heretical belief. Now, it's clear that Risley was interested in targeting men on the king's council and in his household, but I think also that had he managed to accuse the Earl of Hartford, for example, his wife would probably have gone down with him, and her association with Catherine Parr might have implicated the Queen as well. So 1546 is a decisive year 
in terms of plots against Catherine Parr, the women in her household, the men in the king's household. And it was initially based on the performing activities of Catherine Parr and her ladies. They were supporting, they, they were thought to be supporting women like Anne Askew. They were hearing reformist sermons in her chambers. They were reading reformist literature. And this meant that they became political figures. But, but what I find really important in all this is that the king knew that she had sermons in her chambers. He knew who was preaching them. He knew the content. And in August of that year, apparently, he, tell, he told the French ambassador that he and the French king should uh, come up with a communion service to replace the mass and even ordered Thomas Cranmer to go about developing such a service to submit to the French for consideration. So was the king truly upset about Catherine and what she was doing? Or was he sort of sliding that way himself? Uh, personally, I think the king was just in a foul temper. It was Lent. Uh, his health was never good in the winter months when his diet was particularly bad. And I think that exacerbated his temper. I don't think he liked being lectured to or nagged by his wife. And I think just in a moment of pick, he decided I'm going to teach her a lesson. So I, I don't think he was really all that concerned about her religious beliefs or the beliefs of her women. I think he just was not feeling well, and he caught her at a, or she caught him at a, a bad moment in time. I think it speaks volumes as well of how dangerous Henry was. And, you know, when you got comfortable Henry. thinking that you knew him and that you knew what he was thinking, he could very easily turn that on its head. So, so fascinating. What a fascinating episode. Now to conclude, Dakota, I wanted to, to ask you if you could perhaps summarize why you think Catherine Parr is such an important historical figure and one worthy of further study as well. I think anybody, I think anything that enables us to better understand the Tudor court is worthy of study. And Catherine's household is a gold mine when it comes to understanding how politics worked, how religion worked at the highest levels of government. I think it's a perfect study for that. I also think that her household and her time as queen is also a good representation of how affinity worked, how you promoted your family and friends and clients to positions of power, how you promoted them. And this was a traditional thing for women to do. It was accepted that women would do everything they could to promote their family. So the aristocratic women at Catherine Parr's court and Catherine herself did just that. They promoted their family first and foremost, and then their friends and their clientele. So looking at her household, trying to untangle the familial relationships with each other highlights the fact that it truly was who you knew in order to get ahead. So I think, I think those are probably the most important takeaways of Catherine's household. Wonderful. Thank you. And the very last thing that I'm doing in this series is just asking my guests for a takeaway of sorts, a Tudor Queen's takeaway. So something for our listeners to go off and explore after the episode, perhaps to deepen their understanding of Catherine's household or of queenship or any related subjects. So do you have a takeaway for us? I am one of those people who loves reading wills and inventories because nothing was too minor to be recorded. Every knife, 
fork and spoon, every pin for your clothing was recorded. In that respect, there are lots and lots of inventories and wills that, that people can read. But what I want to suggest specifically are a couple of letter collections. Uh, one in particular, and that's the Lyle letter. In six volumes, although there is an abridged edition, you will still get a flavor for the period from the abridged edition, although I think the full six volumes is well worth uh, someone's time and attention. We're talking about, I think, just shy of 2,000 letters and papers to and from the Lyle family. Lord Lyle was the deputy of Calais from the early 1530s until his arrest for treason in 1540, and it's, it documents everything. It's the great events, it's Anne Boleyn's coronation, it's her execution, it's Jane Seymour's marriage, it's Anne of Cleves who comes through, but it's so much more than that. What people ate, the king liked Lady Lyle's quince jam, and so she would make it and send it to you. I mean, you're not gonna see that in a traditional biography of Henry VIII, that he liked quince jelly. They're eminently readable, um, Muriel St. Clair Byrne also provides context and commentary, so it's immediately accessible to a modern reader. Uh, I, I would absolutely recommend that everybody get their hands on these volumes and just read them. It's a sheer delight. Yeah, I absolutely love them. I have I I started off with the abridged version and then very quickly I had to go and invest in the six volumes because they are just absolutely brilliant. As you say, it's those details that we wouldn't know otherwise and Thank goodness for the Lyles. <laughs> well, yes, and poor, poor Lord Lyle. Poor Lord Lyle. To be arrested for treason and then to die the evening he gets the news that he's going to be released from the tower without charge. I know. That's heartbreaking. It is heartbreaking. Another incredible story from the Tudor period. So thank you very much for that takeaway. I have so enjoyed our chat today, Dakota. So thank you so much for making the time to talk Tudors with us. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I like every opportunity I can get to talk about my favorite subject. So thank you for indulging me. Well, that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors. Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetudortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tudors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind-the-scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon.